Good evening and good day everyone. Welcome to the 75th live episode of Ask Abhijit. It's great to have you all with me today. And as you know, today is a session in which I will take questions from the comments you have posted in uh, my channel. Uh, let me just quickly see who all is there. I can see Udit, Harshit, 2.0, Abhishek, Pavan, Sid, Piyu, Jitesh, Udit, Sanathoibi, Harshada, Arya, Dungar Singh Chauhan, Srishti, Chiching, Rajendra, Dilraj, Shubham, Ritesh, Trinay, Devan, Srishti, Siddhant, RTK, Aman Arora, Manya Singh, uh, Sagar Daskupta, Vijay Vaghela, uh, and uh, lots of other people, Deepti Mishra, Ashish, and everybody else. Good evening, good day, wherever you are in the world. It's great to be among you all once again. So, without any further chit-chat, let's get right into the questions that you have asked. And question number one is by Ravindra Kumar. According to you, which side was better, USSR or USA in the Cold War? And why the other side is bad? Also, what are your views on the third side where India was? So I'm expecting that you're asking which was morally, I mean, when you say good, when you say better and bad, I think what you mean is which side was morally superior, right? That's that's the sense that I'm getting from the question. Now, if you were to ask me what is uh, the definition of a good person, what is the best attribute, the most important attribute you must you should have in your personal life, I would say it is empathy and compassion. You should be empathetic and compassionate towards everybody else that you interact with. That These are the qualities that make you a good person, that makes anybody a good person. But in geopolitics, there is no good or bad. There is no right or wrong. There is no morally superior and morally inferior. The only thing that matters is who wins. That's what defines good and bad. The ones, the side whose uh, policies, strategies and tactics are superior is the better side. And the side that loses is the is the bad side because their uh, strategies, tactics, etc. weren't that good enough. So clearly the USA won. The USSR eventually disintegrated. So clearly the US was superior. Its uh, policies, strategies, tactics, everything was better. So I think the answer is self-evident. The USA won. And that's why they, they were the superior side. And the, the USSR lost. Now, if you want to unpack why the USSR lost, you have to go through the history of the USSR. Uh, it's clear that uh, uh, they, their succession wasn't good enough. They lowered their standards. Uh, they allowed people to rise to the top who did not quite believe in the superiority of the USSR and uh, and its policies and its uh, and socialism and communism and Marxism, etc. For instance, Mikhail Gorbachev had this policy of perestroika and glass north openness and essentially undoing everything his predecessors had done. And, you know, so when you allow leaders like that to rise to the top, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, good or bad. It's just why the USSR crumbled eventually. It's because they kind of lowered their standards of leadership, right? They did not have leaders who were ruthless enough to deal with a superpower like the US. So eventually that's what happened and that's why they crumbled, right? So it is all about superiority of tactics, strategies, succession, all those things. You need political stability. You need to ensure that the that the right person 
succeeds the previous leader not some person whose standards are lower or whose agenda is something uh, not quite in line with the official stated policy and objectives of your country so that's why the ussr failed it eventually disintegrated your views on the third side where india was well that's the mediocre side that's the side that has no objective in life that wants to stay mediocre so that was the non aligned movement we don't want to be great we want to be uh, on the sidelines also ran and it is a, a position of apparent moral superiority we will not take this side but we will not take that side either we are neutral what nonsense was india neutral india was a puppet state of the ussr while claiming neutrality utter nonsense so that was just hypocrisy and stupidity it uh, harmed india much more than it did any good for india which you can see from the economic performance and the growth or lack of growth of india during this period it's very clear i mean the data and statistics and numbers simply do not lie we know how how bad india's growth was the nehruvian rate of growth 2% 1% 3% per year a, a country that is a developing country should grow at 10-15% a year if you get your policies right. But India, <laughs> well, we know what happened. So you know, it was just uh, mediocrity by choice that Indians, India's leaders chose for India, and uh, that's that's just what the the facts tell us. So that, in short, is the answer to your question, sir. Okay, Anmol says, are electric cars eco-friendly in the true sense? I read somewhere that the carbon footprint of electric cars leads to more fossil fuel usage to generate electricity. Even Singapore has attributed Tesla cars as a lifestyle and moved in favor of mass transit and hydrogen. Given the popularity and fandom of Musk and Tesla, critical analysis of electric cars has been brushed aside. Your, your thoughts? See, electric cars are a very good concept, but the thing is, they need to... Uh, be charged. The, these cars run on lithium-ion batteries. They have this enormous battery pack at the bottom of the car that uh, lends the car great stability. That's what the Tesla design is like. And these batteries have to be charged after a certain number of uh, kilometers, so 100, 200, 300, whatever it is. I don't know the number. Um, so you need to charge these cars, their batteries, with electricity. Now the question is, where does that electricity come from? How is it generated? In a country like Germany, which makes all of its electricity through burning coal, <laughs> it entire it completely defeats the purpose of having electric cars. Because even though you are powering those cars with electricity, the electricity is, is generated by burning coal, which is horrible for the environment. In a country like India, we are moving towards sustainable fuel, sustainable energy. Right? India is the founder of the Solar Alliance movement. And India is going to uh, is already in the process of moving uh, in a massive way towards solar and other renewable forms of energy, sustainable energy, right? And the Germans they had this these nuclear power plants. They unilaterally shut them down, and now they are generating all of their electricity from burning coal. So when you have a country like that that is such a massive polluter of the atmosphere of the environment, then electric cars are they de it defeats the purpose of having electric cars. Right. So these electric cars that Tesla and every and whoever else uh, builds, I mean, they don't create their own electricity. They they need to be um, connected to a source of power so that they can be recharged. So it's not the fault of Elon Musk or Tesla that these countries are still polluting the world and 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 generating electricity through 
highly polluting means. It's not Elon Musk's fault or Tesla's fault. He's giving a solution, but we have to adopt it in the right way. So it's not quite a lifestyle thing. And, and when it comes to hydrogen, when you want to generate hydrogen, that also needs power. You typically generate hydrogen through electrolysis of water, H2O, two atoms of hydrogen, one atom of oxygen, that's water. You do electrolysis of that and you will generate hydrogen and oxygen separately. And you can dissociate the two and you can uh, make hydrogen from, from that. So that needs electricity. Where is this electricity coming from? If it's coming from the same dirty fossil fuels, then again, generating hydrogen will have its own carbon footprint. The same goes for helium and other things, right? So it's all about how are you generating electricity? That is the main issue. If you are generating electricity cleanly, let's say from solar, then the hydrogen will also be clean. It will have no carbon footprint. And the Tesla cars that you will run will also be clean because they will also have a very low carbon footprint. Now, the best solution, I would say, is mass transit, especially in large countries like India and China. I would say, uh, see, today, everybody wants to own a car. It's a lifestyle thing. We have finally made it in society. I have my own car. I have my own luxury car, all that nonsense. And if you look at India's metropolitan cities, I'm not naming any one city. I'm saying overall, if you look at metropolitan cities in India, the roads are terrible. The con conditions are horrible, very congested. They are still, the the roads and everything, it's still uh, a leftover of the 19th and 20th centuries. Indian cities have not yet entered the 21st century overall, mostly. I, I know that there are these smart city things going on, whatever, whatever the status of that is. I'm sure there is some progress being made. But if you look at overall the big uh, legacy cities of the British Raj, they are still... Uh, planned the way the British planned them. And after, after the British left, it's all been haphazard mushrooming growth with no planning. And if you want to own a vehicle in such a city, you're going to spend two hours transiting one way and two hours transiting back home, from home to office. That's how it goes. And if everybody has a car, it's going to create incredible congestion on the roads. The, in India, we still don't have the Tesla cars or electric cars. And that's why you have this horrific pollution going up. Right. So for India, I would I would argue that the the uh, solution is mass transit. Give every metropolitan city a world class mass transit system. So you don't have to spend two hours going one way and two hours going back, coming back home. You can do the entire commute in 30 minutes total. Why can't we do that? We have the technology and the means and the resources and the money and everything to do that. It's just a question. The problem is that, well, the problem is that it's not a central government choice. It's the local politicians who decide these things. And, well, local politics, well, it doesn't always have the national interest in mind, you see, and the environment in mind and so on. You know, So I'll not go into those details, but the correct solution for countries like India and China is clearly mass transit. The Chinese have built up this enormous high-speed rail network, bullet trains. They have leapfrogged over every other nation in the world. And if they can power those trains with clean energy, with clean electricity, it's going to revolutionize their, their way of living. It's going to clean up the air over Chinese cities and so on. So I, it's, a, it's a complex issue. But the, the solution, the main question is, how are you generating your electricity? It's not Elon Musk's fault that people are still generating electricity by burning coal. It's not his fault. He's giving you a solution, but you have to adopt it in the right way. So uh, that is what I can say about this. But it's an excellent question that you have raised, Anmol.
Okay, Vinita says, are there any developed countries that built their economy through any means other than industrialization? Which are the most heavily industrialized countries which have the least levels of industrialization? The most heavily industrialized countries are the top 10 economies in the world, especially the top 10 or top 20 nations in the world by GDP per capita, not total GDP, GDP per capita. Because if you see India's GDP, it's, it's top three or top four, no? or top five at least. I think it's top five in the world. Top five or, okay, let's say top six. India is in the top six nations by overall GDP. But unfortunately, India's population is larger than the continent of Africa. One nation, India, we have a population larger than the entire continent of Africa. So the per capita GDP is abysmal. So that's why India is a low-income nation, right? Now, if you take the top 20 countries by GDP per capita, they are all highly industrialized, all of them. They have their own industries, they export things, they manufacture things, right? And if you look at the top 10 overall countries by overall GDP, even then you will see that the majority of them are highly industrialized. They've got mature industries that have been in place for a very long time. Look at the Japanese. In 1945, they were a destroyed nation, totally destroyed, flattened in the wake of the Second World War in the twin nuclear bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And they rose from the ashes within a couple of decades and they became the te most technologically advanced nation on the planet, which they still are today, right? They are highly industrialized. They have extremely mature industries. And no developed country becomes developed without industrialization. It is a must. So, and which countries are the least level of industrialization? The, the countries with the low GDP per capita, low income countries, low income nations. These are the ones that have very low uh, levels of industrialization. So the answer is very simple. If India wants to become a developed country, India needs to become an industrialized nation. It needs to develop, invest in its own industries, in technology. Look at the time when India was the most developed civilization in human history, which is most of India's history, except for the last 1000 years. And this is this is not taught to all of you in your textbooks. They don't want you to know this. But India was the most industrialized nation in the world. The entire subcontinent was teeming with indigenous industries, the most advanced industries of all time until that time. We made the best and largest ships in the world. We made the best steel in the world. Indian steel, Seric steel, which is now known as Damascus steel for some reason. Huh? They call it Damascus steel or crucible, uh, crucible steel. That was invented in India, in southern India, and even in uh, in uh, Lanka, in Sri Lanka, about around 500 BCE. So the earliest evidence for this uh, steel manufacturing industry dates back to around 500 BCE. It may be even older than that because we don't do any archaeology, right? We don't waste our time doing archaeology. So India was the most industrialized country and most technologically advanced country in the world, the most technologically advanced civilization in the world throughout most of its history. And that's why India was the number one civilization in the world. And today, when India is a mediocre nation with low standards, it's because we are, we are not industrialized. And we rely on services, IT. We will work as cyber coolies to earn small, small, small incomes. And we feel that we are happy. We are middle class now. Haha. -ha. And we can buy a small car and all that. And we can buy a, a flat on 20-year loan. Nonsense. 
India needs industrialization. India needs to reindustrialize and become a technological superpower all over again, which can happen in the next 20 years if we do the right things. So, good question, Vinita. Ramalakshmi says, you talk about bringing Sanskrit as a national language and it should be used in all spheres, including mother tongue, etc. I agree. And on the other side, the service sector, IT sector mainly, contributes to half of our GDP. That is because of the skilled English-speaking population. Then if we start rejecting English now, how do we do our job? How do we increase our GDP? Are, I just gave you the answer, sir. <laughs> Industrialization. India needs to become an industrial superpower, a powerhouse of industry and manufacturing, a technological superpower. You don't need English for that. I have given uncountable examples of nations that have become technological superpowers without English. Look at India's own history. Did we need English to become a technological and industrial superpower? India was the greatest, uh, high, India had the highest GDP in the history of the world. Did we need English for that? And a nation can never become a high income or middle income nation on the basis of providing services to other nations. That is cyber coolie work. Coolie, that has the word coolie in it. You will never become a great nation by being a, being a nation of cyber coolies. India has to become an industrial nation, a technological superpower, industrial superpower. That's how you really increase the GDP. Look at examples from throughout history. Look at Japan, look at Korea, look at the Asian tigers, look at the Chinese. How did they become uh, middle income nations or even high income nations? Through industrialization, not by providing services to other people as servants and coolies. That's not how we do it. Yeah, we have a few. Uh, we have these IT, IT cyber coolies. I once was one of those. Yeah. So I know how it is. So we need to move away from that. And we don't need English for industrialization. That is where our real strength lies. That's if you look at India's history, which they don't teach you the real history in your textbooks, etc. But if you look at the real history of India, India has always been a technological superpower, an industrial superpower, an intellectual superpower. And India never had had English. We did it without English. The English stole our knowledge and then repurposed it into all these evil endeavors, right? So we need to increase our GDP exponentially 10% plus every year through industrialization, not by providing services to others. When you provide services to other nations, you are building their intellectual capital. You know, 30, 40 years ago, Dubai was a small fishing village. Today, it's a big glittering city with uh, skyscrapers all over the place. Who built those skyscrapers? Tell me. It is Indian coolies who went to the Gulf region and built the entire these cities of Dubai, Abu Dhabi, etc. in exchange for certain little bit of money which increased India's GDP a little bit. Huh? Through remittances back home. Now what did they construct? They constructed, they, they constructed the big beautiful cities of the Middle East. Do the Indians get any credit for it? Do the Indians benefit or profit from what they have built? No. They exchanged their time and labor for a little bit of money. That is the worst way of living. Exchanging your life, your time, your precious time and your labor in exchange for little crumbs of money. That's not how we do things. You build your own great cities. You build your own industries. That's how you become a great nation. Think differently, please. Please change your mindset. Stop being a cyber coolie. 
I'm not saying to anyone in particular, but overall Indians have this mindset. Yeah, let's keep doing, let's keep doing this, you know, providing services. We will all get some, you know, one lakh rupees a month. How nice, wonderful. We'll all live a nice middle income lifestyle, middle class lifestyle. We'll, we can all buy a flat on, on, on loan and we can all also buy a car on loan and then we can pretend like we have, we have made it. That's not how it works. Think better. Okay, this is by Jessica Croyle. I am an Alaskan native, but I got a DNA test and I'm also Mongolian. My people come from the little Diomede Island in the Bering Strait. I wonder what's the connection. Very good question. Let's take a look at, uh, at the map. We have to go to the map for this sort of a question. Where is the map? Oops, where is it? Ah, I see it now. So she says that her people come from the little Diomede Island in the Bering Strait. Let's find where this island is. So where is the Bering Strait? This here, if you can see my mouse pointer, is the Bering Sea. It says Bering Sea here. And the Bering Strait is this little region between Alaska and Siberia and, and the easternmost part of Russia. So let's go deep. Oops, oopsie. Let's go a little deeper into it. Let's zoom in to the Bering Strait. So as you can see, it says Bering Strait here. Now, uh, so this here are the two Diomede Islands. Uh, this is the big Diomede Island and this is a little Diomede Island. So what Jessica says is that her people come from this place here, the little Diomede Island. If you look at the uh, satellite image, you can see there's a small settlement here. And I expect that these are the descendants of the indigenous native people of this region. Uh, the Bering Strait people, the Alaskan people, the people of uh, Eastern Siberia, etc., who essentially would be the more or less uh, ethnically quite similar. So this is where her ancestors come from. And the DNA test is that she has Mongolian ancestry. So I am not surprised whatsoever, because if you look at Mongolia, Where's Mongolia? It's over here. It's quite far, actually, from the Bering Strait. I would say it's a few thousand kilometers. If you just do a quick measurement of distance, it's roughly 5,000 kilometers. And yet we know that the Mongo Mongolian people, they uh, moved around a lot. Their ancestors were the Hunnic people, uh, who were the ancestors of the Mongols as well as the Turkic peoples, right? And we know that these were nomadic people. They moved around a lot. The Huns ended up invading the Roman Empire. They also tried to invade India and, and eventually they succeeded to a certain extent. So the Huns and their descendants, the Mongols, the Turks, they, they moved around all over the place. If you look at Siberia today, it's home to the Turkic peoples. The people who live in Siberia are of Turkic stock, Turkic ethnicity, which means that they are descendants of the Hunnic, of the original Hunnic peoples, which means that they have a close genetic affinity with the Mongolian people. And I expect that the Inuit people of this region, including Alaska, including Northern North America, North Canada, etc., including Greenland as well, they would all be descendants of people who crossed the Bering Strait about 10, 11, 12,000 years ago when the place was frozen over. So I am not surprised that they would have a genetic and ethnic affinity with the people of Siberia and the and the peoples of Mongolia and the Turkic peoples. And uh, even the Native American people, I think it has been demonstrated that they also have some kind of genetic affinity with the peoples of, uh, of Siberia. 
and the Mongolic Turkic peoples. So you know, it's it's this the the story of humanity is a story of migrations, and this is one of the ancient uh, uh, stories that comes out when you uh, go into genetics. So there is definitely a close affinity between the peoples, the indigenous peoples of of North America, the Inuit peoples, the Eskimo, the so-called Eskimos, and the Bering Strait people. And the people of northern northern Eurasia, the Turkic peoples, and Mongolia. Very interesting story, and it's something that uh, will will be brought forth even more as more genetic research is done. So that's a very interesting observation that Jessica has made. Okay, Gaurav says the British ruled over many countries for many years. When then why is only India partitioned? Okay, let us go into the map again. Here is the map. Let's move uh, further east from here. And if you see here, let's zoom into the so-called United Kingdom. And do you see this island here? It's called the uh, the island of Ireland. Do you see this political border here? This here is Northern Ireland. And this is supposedly Ireland. Now, who partitioned the nation, this nation? The British did that right next door to their own homeland they partitioned ireland I, ireland is not a british nation the irish people are not english people they are they are celtic people and the entire island of ireland has people that belong to one single ethnicity the irish people so why is the nation divided it's because the british partitioned the nation divide and rule that's always been the policy of the british they did it right next door to their homeland, Ireland. And Ireland has been, well, it's been a disturbed region for so, so long. For the entirety of the 20th century, the, the Irish were at war with the, with the British. You know, there was this, this violent resist, resistance to the British occupation. And essentially, we find that Northern Ireland is still under British occupation. And Southern Ireland or Ireland is an independent nation. So they have they are still occupying the northern part of Ireland. It is occupied Ireland. You should, we should not call it Northern Ireland. We should call it British Occupied Ireland. B-O-I. British or, or English Occupied Ireland. That's what it actually is. It is a nation under foreign occupation, even today. So it's not that only India was partitioned. And similarly, uh, many other nations have been partitioned by foreign forces. Uh, you know, North Korea, South Korea. I mean, the Koreans wouldn't have wanted, wouldn't have wanted to partition their, their nation, but it is foreign powers that did that. Even Germany was partitioned; it it was reunified eventually, and so on. So it's a, it's a complex thing, but it's not only India that the British partitioned. They even partitioned their own neighbor, Ireland. Okay. Uh, now, okay, this question. Uh, I have heard that in the Mesozoic era, due to higher oxygen levels, animals were bigger and stronger. Like, for example, I've heard that the wingspan of dragonflies was two and a half feet. So how does oxygen play a role in our strength and the physical stature? Hope you answer this. Uh, see, the Mesozoic era is an enormous period of time. It's about 200 million years. It's not a weekend or a month or a century or a millennium. It's 200 million years. 
to put that into perspective the hu- the history of the human species about is about 1 million years 1 million years the mesozoic era is about 200 million years it inc- it, it ended about 65 million years from today before today with the uh, impact event that destroyed the dinosaurs it, it was most likely uh not only the impact but also volcanism etc that contributed to the end of the dinosaurs the non avian dinosaurs so the mesozoic era was approximately 2 200 million years long and you had all kinds of species in the mesozoic era you had large species small species most of the species are lost most of the species are lost in the fossil record we only have examples of certain animals and typically the animals that whose bones survive in the form of fossils these are animals with large bones large animals right that's what catches your eyes and that's why the majority of the species we find are large species we do find some smaller ones as well uh, which are preserved in shale rock etc and so on and you are right there were some dragonflies with large ones with with a wingspan of 2 and 1/2 feet which is about this much which is not a very big deal actually so uh, it's not that animals were typically bigger and stronger it's just that we found a few bigger big ones and we found some small ones as well so the real question is does oxygen play a role in our strength and physical stature well originally oxygen was a poison if you look at the original primordial atmosphere of the earth there was almost no oxygen it was mostly i think carbon dioxide and some other gases if i remember correctly i can you can verify that and then there was this explosion in the pro- this proliferation of 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 cyanobacteria i think it was that led to a sudden increase in the production of oxygen it led to what is known as the great oxygenation event or the oxygen catastrophe which was one of the first mass extinctions on our planet so much oxygen was produced that it killed off almost all life because oxygen was was a poison for the original life on earth so it depends for some life forms oxygen is actually a poison even for us we can suffer from oxygen poisoning if we inhale too much oxygen for too long a period of time pure oxygen for instance which is why you know, we know that the the atmosphere of the earth is about 70% roughly nitrogen and only 28 or 29% oxygen so the air that we breathe it's mostly nitrogen right it's only about 29% oxygen so uh oxygen does keep us alive it does keep our um we need oxygen for for uh, uh for powering our cells and all that uh, hemoglobin binds to the oxygen that we in, that we inhale through our through our respiratory system and so on so that's what it is but i am not sure if there is a direct connection between more oxygen and larger animals as far as i can understand it's not quite the case there is no direct correlation between more oxygen in the environment in the atmosphere and larger animals i'm not even sure if the mesozoic era there was some period of time within this era cretaceous or tri- or triassic no, not triassic cretaceous and something else in which you may have had more oxygen i'm not sure about that so most likely there is no direct correlation between more oxygen and more strength and more size in life forms on our planet 
Mona Lisa Patra says, I am a ninth grade student and I met you once in the live video session. Okay, great. My question is, could you please explain Minkowski space and Sobolev spaces? I'm very curious to know. My teacher said, discover it yourself, but I couldn't explain, I couldn't understand properly the bookish language. Okay, so you're a ninth grade student and you're interested in these things. That's fantastic. Very good. I'm very happy to see that. Now, certain things are so complex that you can't, you simply cannot explain it in layman language, layperson language. So Sobolev spaces are something that you simply cannot explain without mathematical equations. At least I am unable to do that. If maybe somebody else can do it, great. But I find that I cannot explain Sobolev spaces without mathematical equations. And that won't make sense to anybody. So let me explain Minkowski space. Minkowski space is essentially four-dimensional space-time. It's a four-dimensional coordinate system with three spatial dimensions and one time dimension, which is expressed as CT. So C is the speed of light and T is the time dimension. You multiply them together. So it gives you the dimension of, of length, actually, but it represents the dimension of time. So it is a four-dimensional coordinate system, X, the x, the x coordinate, the y coordinate, the z coordinate, z coordinate, and a time coordinate. So that's what Minkowski space is in the simplest possible way that I can explain. Sobolev spaces, it's it's a little too early if you're in the ninth grade, if you're in the ninth grade to learn about Sobolev spaces. Uh, understand what Minkowski space is. It's 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 used in relativity essentially. Special special relativity, general relativity. That's where its use is. So that's what I can say in brief about Minkowski space. Uh, Raghav says, how should India react to China's fake propaganda? <laughs> Whether try to show how strong the Chinese army is when in reality we know that their condition is very bad and weak. First of all, a word of caution, we cannot underestimate the enemy. We cannot ever afford to underestimate the adversary. I disagree that the Chinese are very bad and very weak. If you look at the uh, officially announced um, military budget of China, it's, I think, at least three times India's military budget. Right? So they have way more resources than India. They have been modernizing their armed forces since the 1990s. They have been modernizing their navy since the, since the 1990s. So they are way ahead of us technologically. Understand that this is the 21st century. It is no longer the 19th century when your physical strength and bravery and, and prowess mattered, your physical courage mattered. Today, it's all about technology. How many, and, and numbers, how many planes do you, how many war, war, warships do you have? How many fighter planes do you have? What sort of satellite technology do you have? This is what matters. So you cannot afford to underestimate the Chinese army. They are in many ways technologically more advanced than the Indian army. They have more resources. They have more funds. They may have better superior weaponry in some cases. Where they lack is experience. We don't know the quality of the Chinese soldier, of the Chinese operator of the, all the machinery. Uh, they have faced no conflict. They have no experience of war fighting. India, the Indian army is always deployed in troublesome spots. We have plenty of enemies within and without our country, inside and outside our country. So the Indian army is, is like battle hardened in some ways. Every soldier more or less 
has experienced bullets going past in some form or the other. Or the other. So the Indian soldier is certainly superior as a person compared to the Chinese soldier. Indian soldiers are physically also bigger, larger than the Chinese soldiers. We have seen that in all the videos of the so-called clashes, minor clashes, scuffles and all that. So, uh, but you know, this uh, propaganda warfare is a very important component of warfare. And I don't know why India is not trying to uh, try to indulge in the same. You should use every resource and means of warfare at your disposal. So there are different kinds of warfare, you know. There is lawfare, there is cyber warfare, there is propaganda warfare. And the Chinese are very good at propaganda warfare. They use actors as soldiers. As it's been exposed now. The recent Galwan video that they released, it was a stunt in which actors played soldiers. And that was kind of leaked by Chinese users of Weibo themselves. And those accounts got banned. But, well, the... Uh, they have been exposed. So they are using soldiers, uh, they are using actors to play soldiers and they were not even in the, in the actual Galwan Valley, they were in some other part which is currently held by them temporarily. Right. So the thing is, they are very good at propaganda. They have a propaganda division, they have got high quality, high production videos and all that. We do nothing of that sort. Does it cost us a lot of money to make a few videos to, uh, showing how great our soldiers are, how good our technology is, how powerful our army, air force, navy is. Why don't we do it? It costs nothing. The Indian government has immense funds at, at its disposal. Spend a few lakh rupees, a few million rupees every month making good videos that you can release on social media. What does it cost? Why don't we do it? Why are we so reactive? Why can't we be more proactive? So after the Chinese released that fake video, then the Indian uh, government released some pictures of the Indian soldiers at the Galwan region, which the Chinese claimed they had occupied. So we are simply reacting to Chinese propaganda. And the thing is, propaganda, even if it is fake news, it affects the minds of people because ordinary people don't know the difference between real and fake. And they will start believing that the Chinese are superior, right? It's it's and it can lower the morale of a nation when this sort of Chinese propaganda is being disseminated through social media, through Twitter, Instagram, whatever else, Facebook, etc. So why doesn't India have its own propaganda division? Why don't we do it? Why are we so lethargic in this matter? I, it is perplexing to me. Okay, Debargya Ganguly says, on a near potential war with China, is there any chance of China attacking or capturing the Chicken's Neck region to cut down the road connection between the Far East states and the rest of the country? If they try to do so, how tough will it be for them as the Indian military forces are also really strong and resistant? Okay, let's again take a look at the map. So what is the Chicken's Neck region? It is the Siliguri Corridor over here. So Siliguri is currently under the state of West Bengal. I, I wonder why. Weird. So Darjeeling, Siliguri, etc. is under the administration of West Bengal for some, some region, even though it is far in the north. And uh, Okay, so that is a different matter. So this is about 50 kilometers wide at its narrowest point. 
and on one side you have Bangladesh, on one side you have Chinese occupied, uh, on one side you have Nepal, and so on. So this is possibly a, a place where the Chinese could, uh, in the event of a war, try and cut off this region, try and capture this region and cut off India's access to the north, to the far east states of India, which is Assam, Nagaland, Manipur, Mizoram, Meghalaya, etc., Tripura, and Arunachal Pradesh. Right. So that is definitely a scenario that we have to take very seriously. So the thing is, India has sufficient fortifications and uh, and uh, deployments in this region to to preclude any such threat from China. We also have our air force bases here that could take care of any Chinese misadventure. We could even target Chinese infrastructure in Chinese occupied Tibet, the rail infrastructure, road infrastructure, etc. We can do that. We have missiles also which are developed, uh, which are deployed in this region. I don't know the details. It's good that it is not. Uh, uh, this information is not made public. Obviously, we should not make it public. But we have sufficient deployments here. But let's let's consider the hypothetical scenario in which the Chinese somehow succeed in capturing this region and cutting off India's access to the Far East of India. What should India do in that in that situation? See, most likely the Chinese may first want to take over, take over Sikkim, and they may come through Bhutan, or they may even come through Nepal. In times of war, nobody cares about any other nation's sovereignty. The stronger nation will do whatever it requires. So China is way stronger than Bhutan or Nepal. So they may even come through Nepalese territory or Bhutanese territory and try to cut off this region. Right? So what should India do? The answer is very simple. In case such a thing happens, to reconnect with the Northeast, the Far East, we can simply go through Bangladesh. To hell with Bangladesh's sovereignty. Right, we are the stronger nation. When we need to do something, we'll do it. Afterwards, we'll give the territory back to Bangladesh if we, if we if we so wish. Right. So, in times of war, we have to do whatever is required to hell with someone's sovereignty. The only thing is, you need to uh, regain access to your territory, and we have sufficient uh, armed forces deployments in the northeast, in the in the far east of India. So, in case this region is cut off, we simply go through Bangladesh. Simple. We take over the northern part of Bangladesh or whatever portion is uh, tactically easier to traverse and we just go through that. We put a massive deployment in this region and we can say, Bangladesh, excuse me guys, for some time we are borrowing your territory, hopefully for not too long <laughs> and we can do whatever is necessary. So it's, it's very simple actually. The, it's not a very uh, big issue even if such a thing happens. Okay. Uh, Aditya says, in the past, you have been you have been saying that uh, this form of democracy is not suitable for India. Then can you explain the ancient democracy which you said India should adopt? I said that India should look back upon the times when India was the most developed civilization on the planet and try to understand what were the causes of India being so highly developed. And what was the form of governance at that time? And maybe we can gain some inspiration from that and try and adopt something similar in the 21st century context. Right? Because if you look at the past 70 years, we have adopted this Western British form of democracy and you can see the result. India is a mediocre nation today, a nation of very low standards. We are constantly fighting each other. We have no unity within the nation. The center is so weak. The states are so strong. The states can override the center. You know what happened two days ago in Punjab. You know the situation in various eastern states of India. 
you know how things are in other states. Well, I'll not take names, but you know how it is. So India is a weak nation today. It's a soft state. It is not a strong state. There's too much disunity in the country. There are too many external forces at work in the country, pulling the country in several various directions. There are, there are all these attempts and programs to re-engineer the demographics of India and so on and so forth. And it is all thanks to India's so-called democracy, which, which puts in, in the context of India's modern democracy, being an anti-national is, is a basic right. It's, it's freedom of expression. Expressing support for India's enemies and expressing support for the breakup of India is freedom of expression. And indulging in various activities that that have the objective of re-engineering India's demographics and of destroying India's culture, that all comes under under uh, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and, and democratic rights. Right. Um, so that is the form of democracy we have in India. So what form of democracy did we have in ancient India? So we ancient India is 10,000 years. So we had lots of different forms of governance. We had good... Uh, systems we had certain bad systems you had terrible kings at times in some in some parts of india and so on but typically if you look at uh, the mauryan time you had an emperor and then you had dem democracy in the local regions of india but uh, so you had these uh, sabhas ganrajyas you know ganraj is a republic in which you have a king or emperor who is elected by the people and there is an advisory council that represents the people that is also elected by the people and the king is bound to do what the people decree the people what the people want the king cannot go against the wishes of the wishes of the people so it was the the kings were elected right that's how you had the ganrajyas of india the mahajanapadas in the 8th century, in the 7th century, in Vanga Pradesh, Anga Pradesh, which is present-day Bengal, you had a period of uh, a century or two of complete anarchy. It was called Matsya Nyaya, the law of the fish, big fish eats small fish, that's what it was. And the people got tired of it, the people of Vanga Pradesh, the Bengali, ancestor of today's Bengalis, they got tired of this, they elected a king who went on to found the great Pala dynasty. I think his name was Gopal the first, if I'm not mistaken. Look it up. Look it up, guys. I don't remember everything. I don't memorize facts, but the, the founder of the Pala dynasty was elected by the people of Bengal. It was an election. So you see, that's how it was. But you do not, you, you do not have this three-year, four-year, five-year cycle. Every five years, you need, you need somebody else. No. You elect the right person and let the person rule on your behalf. So that was the Indian form of democracy. It was a hybrid system. You had a king or an emperor, imperial system as well. But once again, the king or the emperor was bound to follow, to, to, to heed the word of the people and, and to rule in the name of the people and to carry out the will of the people. Today, it is not the case. It is not the case. Do India's laws reflect the will and the culture and the values of the people? No, they don't. Does India's constitution reflect the will and the values and the culture of the people and the civilization of India? No, it does not. It is a foreign imposition upon India. We are still being ruled by outside forces. Through the constitution, through the laws, which are all British in origin, even the constitution of India has its origin in the Indian Independence Act or, Act or whatever it was, which the British 
formulated. And we are following this Westminster system of democracy, two houses of parliament. The Rajya Sabha is unelected essentially, and they have a veto power over what the actually elected people do, the Lok Sabha. We can't even elect our leader directly. We can't decide who our prime minister will be. We can only elect our local representative, our local MP, and then the MPs get together and elect and decide whoever they want as the prime minister. That is so unfair. Why can't India's citizens decide directly who should be the prime minister instead of this indirect nonsense? And there are so many such issues, right? So India has tried this experiment for seven plus decades. This is a failure. India is today a mediocre nation with very low standards. The Indian people are a great people. The Indian people are not a mediocre people, but they are forced to live a mediocre life under a mediocre system and under mediocre politicians who are self-serving and a mediocre education system and mediocre institutions. And today Indians are taught to be mediocre. Right? So the entire mindset has been changed. So this needs to be thrown out. India needs to reclaim the greatness that is hers by nature. So we need the right leaders who can arm wrestle the system and throw it out and bring in the reforms that India so desperately needs. Okay, uh, what is patrilineal and matrilineal DNA lineages and how different the physical and psychological impact does it have on the offsprings? Okay, let me just answer the first part. The physical, psychological impact is, uh, I'm not even sure what that is. What is patrilineal and matrilineal DNA or, or lineages? So if you look at, um, if you look at the cells in your body, if you examine them, every cell, uh, so there are, every cell has a nucleus except for the red blood cells. The red blood cells have no nuclei, okay? But other cells have something called a nucleus at the center. Inside the nucleus, there are two complete sets of the human genome, all the genes. There are two sets of that. One comes from your father, one comes from your mother, Right? And there are subtle differences between uh, because when when an offspring is created, there is a recombination, etc., which determines your physical characteristics. Now, uh, so there are two kinds. So, in, so your genetic code is packaged into twenty-three, uh, you could say, packages or chromosomes, twenty-three pairs of chromosomes, in which uh, the nuclear. I mean, there is there is uh, there are the so-called sex chromosomes X X X Y which uh, the X chromosomes comes from the, come from the mother and the Y chromosome comes from the father. And that's where the uh, patrilineal lineage comes from. So whatever genetic code is encoded in the, y, in, in the case of Y chromosomes for males, that uh, is the genetic information that comes from your patrilineal ancestral line. It is passed on from father to son. So females don't have X, Y chromosomes. That's why it is only passed on from father to son. Now, when it comes to, uh, there's another kind of DNA called mitochondrial DNA, which is passed on from mothers to their offspring. So males as well as females have mitochondrial DNA in the mitochondria in their cells. But only mothers can pass this on to their offspring. 
right so essentially this lineage is passed on from mother to daughter even though even males have it so but it is not passed on by males it is only passed on by by females so that is the matrilineal lineage so whatever dna genetic information is encoded in the mitochondrial dna is what makes up your matrilineal dna lineage so whatever mutations characteristic mutations are there that's your matrilineal haplogroup a haplogroup is an extended family which has a characteristic mutation that originated from one ancestor so you have patrilineal haplogroups and matrilineal haplogroups and you also have what's called nuclear dna or autosomal dna which is a whole different story so that is patrilineal dna lineages and matrilineal dna lineages what psychological impact it has nothing i mean i'm sure your genetics have some clearly have uh, an an effect on the kind of personality and character you have but we haven't been able to exactly decode how that works your physical characteristics obviously it all depends on your genetics your physical height the maximum potential height you can achieve a child can achieve is encoded in their dna but it also depends on how what kind of lifestyle they have what kind of food they eat and all that so if they have a good active lifestyle and they eat highly nutritious food they will reach their genetic maximum in terms of height physique uh, all that so all of these characteristics are encoded in a person's dna which comes from both the sides of your ancestry the matrilineal line and the patrilineal line and there are all kinds of lineages that are present in your dna it's not just two two lineages it's, it's thousands or or millions of lineages if you go back uh, further in time so that is the answer in brief why do some countries still have the queen of england as the head of state what benefits do they get from it and how to make the queen officially apologize for the deeds of the british empire so why do some countries still have the queen of england as the head of state there are i think three countries which are still dominions of the british crown it's canada it's australia and new zealand so these countries are still dominions of the british crown their official head of state is still the queen of england and when the queen of england will pass on to the next life it is her son shri charles who will be the king of england and he, and he will be the head of state um uh, of canada of australia and of new zealand so why do these countries still con- uh, continue this because they are offspring of the of the english of the english nation so canada was settled and conquered by the english so was the so was the united states the americans had this war of independence because they did not want to pay taxes to the british crown so they seceded and they won the war of independence and they became a separate country independent country the canadians remained under england and they were happy to do so and their ancestry their entire system everything comes from england so they are in in, in a way the same people they have some french component as well and that's always been problematic for canada quebec montreal but uh, overall canada is under the british system it is a continuation in some way of of england and so is australia so is new zealand right australia was invaded and occupied by people of british of english ancestry by the pirate cook he's called captain cook he's considered to be a great explorer today he was a pirate and uh, the same goes for new zealand it's also been uh, 
taken over or invaded and occupied by people of english ancestry british ancestry so that's why they they see they see themselves as nothing but a colony in some way of england they see themselves as having the same ancestry and culture as england and that's why they are happy to be dominions of the british crown uh how to make the queen officially apologize for the deeds of the british empire listen people don't like giving apologies people don't like to apologize right now in what conditions does somebody apologize someone apologizes when they are scared of you someone apologizes when they have when they are fearful of you people apologize when they fear the consequences of not apologizing that's when apologies are forthcoming do you understand what that means apologies happen when there is hard power on display big stick on display not soft power and pleading and begging and all that please apologize no you got to compel people to apologize and you have to say or else or else this happens or else this 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 happens there are going to be consequences real world consequences painful consequences that's when people apologize so you want to make the queen of england apologize or or you want to make her son charles apologize when he becomes king india needs to become a gigantic superpower a, a nation with real demonstrable hard power which is which it is willing to use when required india is not that today india is a soft state today india is not even a regional power today india can't even influence its neighbors so india needs to transform itself into a genuine superpower into an economic superpower a military superpower and a global power for this sort of thing to happen then everybody will apologize to india once we have the right leadership and the right uh the right reforms because we will not become a superpower without deep and wide reforms and for that we need the right leaders and we need to free ourselves of the shackles that we are currently under the foreign shackles the constitution the laws the institutions and the other geopolitical interference that's constantly happening in happening in the country in a variety of ways when we can break those shackles that's when we will be able to liberate ourselves rise to our true potential and then the queen of england will apologize why is the west um the west is still continuing colonialism <laughs> in many ways can you tell us some ways how the west is doing this well that that kind of kind of ties into the previous question how to make the queen apologize and and right now we are under all these foreign shackles there is a lot of foreign interference in india which indians are blissfully unaware of there are so many ngos in india which have which receive millions or bi even billions of dollars of foreign funds there are certain foreign religious organizations that are very interested in india they are pouring billions of dollars every year into india into constructing their religious infrastructure and networks and power structures right there are other ngos think tanks and what not that espouse foreign causes in india there are all these ngos that use the judicial pil system to interfere in the governance of india and to into to and to prevent india in the indian government from doing certain things 
there is so much foreign interference in india that is a continuation of colonialism do you understand that if you look where you need to look you will see the things but indians ah guys wake up learn where to look the signs and symptoms are all around you but you are so inured to that you don't realize it now look at let's take another example recently the government of india reintegrated kashmir jammu and kashmir with india for the first time in 70 years for the first time after independence jammu and kashmir has been properly reintegrated with, with india right the abolition of those articles and all that right that's what the indian government did they undid the status quo that the british had put in place and a status quo that was in place for 70 plus years now that is a challenge to the western establishment because the west wants things to to be in a certain way around the world you change that it's going to upset the apple cart and see the response that that the symptoms of that response in india see what's happening in certain eastern states of india see what's happening in certain northern states of india and other parts of india and some southern states also as well certain activities are happening if you have a little bit of intelligence you'll know what i mean these activities are being orchestrated by outside forces by a variety of outside forces but they are most likely all being controlled by certain big powers so whatever has happened since the reintegration of kashmir all the big challenges that you see to india's sovereignty in a variety of ways those are being orchestrated by outside forces by by outside forces using indian citizens who are enemies of the state that is a continuation of interference and colonialism we had the so called great game in central asia right the great game which was a contest between the russian empire and the british empire and the objective was to capture india the british had already captured india the russians wanted a piece of the pie and the whole game was being played in the central asian region whoever would control central asia would have access to india the crimean war happened as a consequence of that in the middle of the 19th century the great game is still continuing it is all colonialism so you you have this puppet states that are supposedly democratic and you control them you you pay the dictatorship the, the, the dictator you install a dictator in place you keep him as your puppet you give him whatever money he wants and you govern the state from without from outside in this manner see what's happening in kazakhstan right now what exactly is that that is what's happening there is a symptom of external interference so central asia is has historically in the past century or so been um part of russia's sphere of influence right now other nations other forces are trying to encroach in there and that's why you see all these reactions look at the middle east why is the middle east permanently under crisis who keeps this crisis going there are certain presidents in the us who have tried to end the crisis and those presidents mysteriously lose elections or even disappear this is colonialism this is colonialism by other means look at all the civil wars and other things in africa 
these are happening because of outside interference why do dictators always um, come to power in africa because they are installed as puppets by foreign powers so this is con- continuing colonialism if you know where to look if you are, if you can recognize the symptoms you will see it's everywhere it's everywhere it's inside india it's inside asia it's in eurasia it's in japan it's in africa it's in the middle east it's in south america it's everywhere there are certain countries that want to meddle everywhere they want to tell you how to live your life they want to tell you how to govern your country they want to tell you what sort of system you should have they want to tell you what kind of religious demographics you should have in your country and so on and so forth that is colonialism it's happening all the time it's high time nations like india rise up against that it will take time but it needs to happen ayushman says what's he saying with appearance how did they come with appearance of dinosaurs majorly on basis of skeletal structure how do we know it's accurate okay what ayushman is saying i think is we have reconstructed what dinosaurs look like based on the skeletons that we have discovered so how accurate are these reconstructions so these reconstructions are not quite accurate in my opinion see let's let's take a modern example if you look at the skeletal structure of a rabbit okay let's say i i give you simply a drawing of the skeleton of a of a rabbit and if you try to reconstruct the living animal without knowing that what it actually is then you will reconstruct an uh, an animal that looks like something out of a horror movie okay because it looks more like a cat if you look at the skeleton but the actual bunny rabbit is nice and soft and fluffy and cute but the skeleton gives you a very different impression of what it what what it could be like you can't see the big ears first of all from the skeletal structure you can see the nice big fluffy fur ball appearance the nice soft tummy the big eyes and all that you can't see that from the skeleton from the skeleton you will you will reconstruct reconstruct something very different from what a rabbit actually looks like similarly the dinosaurs would may have looked very different first of all for the from the for, for the majority of the time we have known about dinosaurs one essential component has been missing that component is feathers today we have realized that almost all dinosaurs had feathers can you believe it feathers because uh, recent discoveries in uh, fossil discoveries especially in china they they have been able to find fossils with in which the feathers are also preserved and the pigmentation or the coloration of the feathers also, also preserved so now we have a totally different idea of what dinosaurs looked like we actually know that all almost all dinosaurs had feathers we even know the colors of the feathers of some of these dinosaurs some of them had beautiful brilliant colors some of them had these bands and and patterns on them you know so dinosaurs had chicken like skin scaly skin and they had feathers on top of that on top of that skin it's most likely that even the so the great famous t-rex may have been a dinosaur covered with covered in feathers you know and we don't know how much flesh they had 
typically the the reconstruction of dinosaur uh, appearance is based on a tight fitting skin and less flash less flesh which gives it this evil kind of appearance maybe they also were fluffy in some cases like the bunny rabbit so we don't know we don't quite know uh we have never been able to find a perfectly frozen preserved dinosaur the way can the way we find mammoths for instance but if we can find one of these uh, specimens then it's it's very unlikely we can do that because it's been 65 million years but looking at birds we can kind of get an idea of what dinosaurs actually may have looked like so certain bird for the bird skeletal structures look quite different from what the bird actually looks like in real life so that gives us an ind- indication that our reconstructions may not be very much accurate so maybe we should pattern our reconstructions of dinosaurs based on what we know about birds because dinosaurs and birds are the same thing birds are the descendants of avian dinosaurs so dinosaurs didn't quite die out dinosaurs still live among us they are out there on the trees they live in nests they are your chicken your your turkey your crow your pigeon your ostrich your emu and all that the nightingale the bird the the sparrow the kingfisher these are all dinosaurs so maybe we should uh, try and reconstruct dinosaurs based on what we know about birds that may possibly or may quite likely be more accurate okay you said you have said in the past that india needs a strong centralized leadership to grow but in the past when india was in its golden age administration was decentralized even strong emperors like chandragupta had virtually no role in the day to day administration of people in villages or towns far away from from patliputra so don't we need more decentralization to develop rather than more centralization look you, what you have observed is correct chandragupta maurya the emperor of india had no time to look into the day to day affairs of villages and towns and cities his duty was to look at the long term security and prosperity of the empire he had to look at the big picture as the emperor the emperor cannot spend half an hour every day looking into each village and what's happening over there so he has to appoint administrators at the lower levels who will do the job for him he cannot go and look into all that matters all these matters otherwise he will be simply micromanaging the empire and not looking at the big picture the big threats the big opportunities and all that so when you rise to the position of emperor you simply can't do that you have to appoint regional administrators at the state province level at the city level town level village level gram panchayat level and all, and all that right you need that structure that's called division of labor you find that in every country but 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 all of these administrators they owed their allegiance to the emperor the emperor's word the, the emperor's word was law they did not do anything without the express approval policy level approval of the emperor and they could be dismissed at a moment's notice by the emperor or worse right so it was one system they could not make decisions on their own and impl- create and implement policies on their own understand that the policy level decisions all came from the top and these guys implemented those policies they could not 
try and become independent okay in my state i'm going to do this i'm going to use this language i'm going to introduce this religion and i'm going to have this system of education and i'm going to have a different judiciary no 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 you try to do that you will be off with his head so it was a strong centralized structure and a brilliant example of of empire wise empire wide administration so of course you need a excellent administration an excellent administrative structure to govern a subcontinent sized empire in today's case and you see the same thing during the time of kanishka the great during the time of of kumara gupta skanda gupta samudra gupta during the time of cholas and, and so on of course they had to delegate responsibility to other people for governance but everybody obeyed the diktat the policy that the emperor had set nobody could try and become independent in some way or the other and and try to use their own uh, policies right today what you have in india is called federalism so they say that law and order is a state subject the state will set its own policies and everything and the center cannot interfere what nonsense is this india is no longer united as a single civilization because of this every state goes in its own direction the center may have some policy but the but the state can undo that policy at its own whim the center wants to create infrastructure across the country but some states i'm not naming any specific state but certain states if they wish they can sabotage that they can derail that for years and decades this is something we never had during the time of our great emperors never we never had this so this is a very weak structure that we have today decentralization can be done in the right way the way it was done when india was a great civilization that is the right way to do it but what we have today is fragmentation it is not decentralization it's called federalism they say india's strength is federalism bolt it india's greatest weakness is federalism india is too fragmented because of federalism india needs a country a civilization the size of a subcontinent subcontinent needs a very strong central government whose writ is followed and obeyed across the length and the breadth of the civilization that's what india needs we are the the chinese enjoying they enjoy saying that india has too much democracy what they mean is that india is too weak a state it is too fragmented in this manner it is too federalized and every little piece of india thinks it can run its uh, run the state in its own specific way that is what makes a weak state not a strong state it is not india's great strength it is india's greatest weakness india needs to move away from this system that has been imposed upon it, it to keep it weak india needs to revert to uh systems that are reminiscent of the times when india was a great civilization that's what india needs karan says i think we can assume that the greatest of all time goat conquerors like chinggis khan alexander shengying kanishka samudragupta rajendra chola were great tactical and strategic generals but do but did they have pure martial prowess did they have the ability to personally lead cavalry charges into the enemy lines and cut down armies very interesting question see when you are the emperor of a civilization kanishka 
the emperor of all of India or much of India. Samudra Gupta, the emperor of whole of India. Chandra Gupta, the emperor of all of India. Rajendra Chola, the emperor of greater India. And so on. When you are the emperor, you are the most valuable person in the entire civilization. Your life has to be at the, at the greatest premium. And therefore, when you are the emperor, you do not lead the cavalry charges. You sit in the strategically correct place, you issue orders, and people go and do what you say. Right? Now, the thing is, when you are in a military campaign, you go there, but you don't participate, you give orders, right? The, th the question is, why should your soldiers obey you? Very often, the, the orders you issue, they, they send your men, your soldiers, into harm's way. You may even have to order people to go on suicide missions, which is certain death. So why should your soldiers obey you and go to the deaths? That's the question. So to do that, you have to understand certain principles. When, see, to be a great general, you need the respect of your men and you need the love and affection of your men. If you have the respect of your men and the affection of your men, then you can actually send them into the deaths. You can tell them, this is what our country needs. I need 10 of you to go and do the suicide mission. I know you will not come back, but this will help our country prosper. And if the general who issues this order has the respect and the love of his soldiers, they will willingly die for him. So the question is, how do you gain this, this respect and this love? That's the question. Let us take the example of Skanda Gupta, the last great Gupta emperor of India. So when Skanda Gupta was a young, young boy, his father was the emperor of India. Kumara Gupta, I think it was. And during his father's reign, there was this great, these great waves of invasions from the north. These nomadic barbarians called the Shweta Hunas, the Hunic peoples, they were trying to invade India. They knew India was fabulously rich. They wanted a piece of that pie. So they were invading from the north and India was, was like, it was the, the situation was shaky. So this young boy, Skandagupta, the son of the emperor, he took charge of his father's army. He went and faced the Huns personally in battle and he repulsed wave after wave after wave after wave of Hunnic invasion with and he participated in these battles personally. He put his life on the line again and again and again and again. And he showed to everybody, that I may be the son of the emperor, but I am no weak, soft boy. I am the greatest warrior in the country, in the civilization. So he proved his martial prowess as a boy, as the, as the crown prince, repeatedly. After his father died, he became the emperor. By that time, he had nothing left to prove. His dedication to the civilization was beyond question. Everything he did, he did for his people, for his nation. And after, after you have proven this, people will love you. People will respect you. You order them to the deaths, they will go and die for you. Because they know you're not doing it for yourself. You're doing it for the greater good of the people and the civilization. The same goes for Chinggis Khan. The same goes for... Uh, Kanishka, the Rajendra Chola, they all prove themselves repeatedly 
time after time after time and only then were they able to reach the status they reached as great emperors and once you reach that status nobody questions you your word is the law and everybody is they, they feel it is a great honor to die because you told them to die for the greater good of the nation so that is what happens the goat conquerors once they reach the status of great conquerors they no longer participated in the cavalry charges because it would put their life at, at peril when the when the emperor dies it destroys the morale the emperor's life is the most precious life right so once you become the emperor you can no longer participate in cavalry charges and you can no longer recklessly risk your life you may be a great warrior but a stray arrow can kill you the great hemachandra vikramaditya the last hindu emperor of india he died because of bad luck a stray arrow so you can no longer do that once you are an emperor it's very important but to be an emperor and to command everyone's universal respect and love you have to first prove yourself repeatedly you have to prove your dedication to the cause of the nation of the of the empire of the civilization and you have to prove your bravery in your martial prowess as a young man or woman whatever right once you have done that it's beyond doubt and people will follow you anywhere you lead them or tell them to go okay yashwant says what leadership qualities must a person have in order to lead an enormous country like bharat with so much diversity and problems that present day scenario once again i would say let's look back to the times of the great kings and emperors of india chandragupta maurya even before you can look lord ram lord krishna uh, the great emperor bharat after whom our country our civilization is named and others like i said uh, chandragupta maurya kanishka the great lalit aditya muktapida um the the great gupta emperors rajaraja rajendra chola even the great shivaji maharaj right what leadership qualities did they have if you if you study their lives and their careers you will know exactly what leadership qualities you need to lead and govern successfully an enormous country like bharat first of all you need to know what power is if you see my chingis khan video it's all about power chingis khan's father was a wealthy man but after he died that wealth was of no use to him right power always trumps wealth when you want to lead even if you want to serve and dedicate your entire life to the service of the nation you have to first come to power you cannot come to power without understanding the true nature of power power is a great mystery power is the greatest mystery if you can understand that mystery half the work is done so you do understand what power is you do understand the nature the true nature of power what creates power where does power come from where does power come from do you become powerful when you become the prime minister there have been prime ministers in india who have who are completely powerless you may be in office but you will not be in power so power is something else entirely there are power structures that are extra electoral in nature not just in india but across the world so to truly lead to truly lead 
you have to understand what really what power really is and you have to understand how to wield that power and use it how to use it you have to understand the power of fear the power of discipline and the power of power so these are the things these are the leadership qualities you need and you need to have complete transparency and integrity transparency may not always be possible in the national interest you have to keep certain things secret but your integrity has to be unimpeachable and your service has to be only to the people and the nation and the civilization nobody to nobody else there should be no hidden conflicts of interest right that's why it's typically uh, a king who has no family an unmarried king usually makes the best king it's not always the case but look at the example of lord ram he had a family and yet he was maryada purushottam which his actions bear out so these are some of the some of the things some of the qualities a true leader must have understand what leadership is i will eventually go into this in more detail and and demystify some of the things i alluded to but understand that leadership is very different from what you think it is corporate leadership corporate leadership is a joke a manager is not a leader a manager is not a leader there is no such thing as corporate leadership corporate leadership is all about managing people it's about taking a bunch of sheep and taking and, and pulling them in the same direction leadership at its core is about service a leader is not a boss a boss is not a leader so so these are the things you have to start understanding slowly i will eventually demystify this <laughs> again a similar question what's the most efficient form of government according to you if it's not democracy then how should be the next leader be groomed or elected or selected see the most efficient form of government is a form of government in which the decisions are made rapidly in real time and they are not just made rapidly they are implemented and enforced rapidly in the 21st century the nations that will make decisions the fastest and implement them the fastest are the nations that are going to rule the world the most efficient form of government is a government in which this happens decisions are make, made informed decisions are made in real time quickly and they are implemented very quickly right and these are good decisions made informed decisions in decisions that are made in the long term national interest that is the most efficient form of government now does it have to be a democracy not a democracy doesn't matter if if a democratically elected government can do this i'm happy if it's a non democratic form of government but they they are making quick decisions the right decisions in the long term national interest i have nothing against that what matters is not the form of government what matters is the long term security and prosperity of the nation and its people that is the only thing that matters that is the bottom line who cares whether it's a democracy or something else right that's what matters do you think holding elections once every 4 years hinders the capability of decision making of the leaders as they worry about the seat more than reforms absolutely 4 years 5 years makes no difference when you have 
elect an election looming looming in front of you you your mindset is always uh, different see electoral politics imposes certain restrictions on people on leaders if you want to lead the country and take it in the right direction you have to make sure you are elected again you have to win elections but to win elections you have to be popular you you cannot win an election unless you are popular right now understand the real conundrum a leader a genuine leader a true leader has to make hard decisions a genuine leader has to make hard choices unpopular choices choices that are going to impose some pain in the short run so that you will have the right outcome in the long run you want to lose weight you're going to have to go on a diet you have to go to the gym it's painful who likes it but it's good for you in the long run you want to learn a new skill you have to study 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 it's painful in the short run in the long run it's good for you similarly a genuine leader who wants to take the country in the right direction has to make unpopular decisions that will be painful in the short run but they will be they will give you the reward in the next 20 30 years but such decisions make leaders unpopular that makes leaders lose elections to 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 win elections you have to do populist politics but populist politics keeps the country uh, country down it it slows the growth of the of the country that's why this electoral system is terrible right maybe you should have elections once in 10 years but then you have to make sure that you elect the right right leader so you know this this entire system it's a passing phase throughout history throughout human history we the 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 actual form of government governance has been very different from what we have today so maybe this is a passing phase and maybe eventually the world will revert back to a quasi imperial system perhaps we are already seeing that in china we are already seeing that in russia the western system is not the right system look it's it's weakening the west as well we think the west succeeded because of the system it's not true do you know why the west has succeeded thus far it's because of the past 5 centuries of plunder they plundered the east they stole looted ravaged pillaged everything of value that was in the east and they enriched themselves at our expense that's why they have risen to the level they have risen today but their system isn't the right system and it's crumbling wait another another 50 years and see who's really at the top of the world so i think it is this is not the right system for for any country if it wants to truly progress rise uh should we shouldn't we increase the number of iits in india considering a large number of youth want to pursue engineering and improve the quality of the existing iits in india since i heard new iits are not up to up to the standards as the old established iits the old established iits are also not up to any standards you go to any established iit one of the old ones you will see that they will have million dollar washrooms million dollar conference rooms and their equipment the instrumentation in the labs is 20 30 years old they have the money but they are using it in the wrong way because it is administrators and bureaucrats not scientists who are running it and even the professors etc you will see there are mediocre you may have one out of 100 or two out of 100 who are world class but the others are just mediocre 
the iits are not even in the top 100 institutions in the world so what we need is we need to first of all change the way the iits are iits are run we need to ensure that the right leadership is in place in each iit so first we need to improve the quality of the iits by changing by by reforming the iit system and secondly yes why don't we have one iit in every district in india the country needs engineers lots and lots of them why can't we have one iit in every district or at least one in every state in india we should have that i agree okay uh do you think modern science to some extent resembles charvaka's philosophy you can't mix science and philosophy you simply can't the charvaka philosophy says that everything is the, the only the material world exists there is no karma there is no rebirth there is no god none of that exists only the material observable world world exists and therefore the objective of life is to enjoy your your physical body the physical life and in, have as much fun as possible that in a nutshell is the charvaka philosophy science says nothing about enjoyment science says nothing about the purpose of life science says nothing about what your purpose, what your life's objective should be science says nothing about the morality and the ethics that you should have science is all about is all about understanding the observable universe it's about physical objects it's about observable phenomena and that's it it's about data it's about what you can observe and what you can deduce from the observations based on axioms postulates and the laws that you have been able to make of uh, the laws of physics that you have been able to deduce and the logic of mathematics that has nothing to do with charvaka it's it, it on a superficial level it sounds somewhat similar it has nothing to do with charvaka whatsoever charvaka is about ethics and morality it's just a certain perspective of the world right and it tells you how to live your life in a certain way and it makes a claim without any actual foundation right now modern science actually actually it resembles more the atomism of kanada for instance and the various uh, schools of thought of science that we had uh in india and those schools of thought did not emerge out of charvaka for instance none of those schools of thought none of those scientific schools of thought emerged out of charvaka philosophy not one if you look at the entire philosophical spectrum of indian civilization all the different schools of philosophical thought charvaka is the shallowest and stupidest school of thought i do not mean to pass any judgment on some people or whatever this is simply my personal opinion my personal opinion it is not a judgment on anybody whatsoever okay so this is my perspective on this okay let me take one more question mm. which political party should i vote for in the upcoming up elections you should vote for a political party that in your opinion in your assessment in your judgment a political party that will take the country forward that will that that has the country's national interest foremost in its mind a, a party that will develop the state of up further economically financially culturally which will impose better law and order conditions that what you have had in the past history so a, a, a party that will improve the law and order that will give people law order and justice that will 
uh, improve the economy of the state and that will uh, bring the state back to its former glory. That's what I can tell you. So you have to decide which political party suits this, uh, fits this bill according to your own wisdom and judgment. I cannot tell you vote for party A or party B. I can give you a framework which you can use to analyze the various political parties and then you can come at your own conclusions. That's what I will say. And let me take one last question. Please tell us something about your personal life. Please tell us something about your personal life. Shall I, shall I tell you my secrets? So I was born 13.7 million years ago on a star system called Epsilon Eridani. It's about 10.5 light years from your system, the star that you call the sun. And I came to this planet about 1500 years ago. My objective was to mingle, to mix in, assimilate and wait for the right time until there is sufficient technological development, at which time my, my task is to send back word to my people on my star system. Do you remember 2017 Oumuamua? That was my people. I sent back the word. <laughs> okay. Just kidding, guys. Just, just joking. All right. That brings me to an end of today's session. Great fun. Great questions. Please keep your questions coming. We will do this again tomorrow. Same time, same channel. So tomorrow will be a live chat session. Be ready with your questions and I will try and take as many as possible. Until then, I wish you a very good day, very good night, wherever you are. And I will see you tomorrow. Bye.